Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello, my name is James Reese, and welcome to another episode of Razorwire. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the wonders of cyber insurance. And who could I want more than the guy that I have on the podcast today? I've got Matthew Clark. Matt, do you want to kind of introduce yourself? Yeah, happy to. And uh, thanks for having me on uh, the podcast. So my name's Matthew Clark. I am a 35-year career vet in the insurance space. Uh, Most of that time has been spent in a client-facing role, insurance broking and risk managing. So that is to say, sort of helping businesses of all shapes and sizes understand what their external threats are, the threats being to their overall strategic resilience, you could say, and then trying to use risk management and different types of insurance in a hopefully intelligent way to mitigate and manage those risks and to, of course, lay some of them off onto insurance uh, company capital where possible. So I've been doing that for a long time. I I would say most of the last four years, three or four years, I've been focused chiefly on cyber and the whole area of cyber risk and cyber insurance. But my experience is broader than that. But right now, it's it's all about cyber in my space, and that's um, a happy coincidence with uh, with the subject matter for today's chat. Fantastic, and you're absolutely right. I think. I mean, I come from a long background myself. I mean, 25 years ago, when I got into to IT and and informa- you know, IT security as it was known back then, I cut my teeth in the reinsurance side of of, of insurance. So I worked for a number of reinsurance firms. And uh, I learned a lot about risk from doing that because, uh, as I like, still like to say today, nobody knows more about risk than insurance people. Because I mean, how old is your industry now? It's quite an interesting, you know, brief, vague backdrop. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, th- I think it's um, a few thousand years. People can trace back a kind of cooperative approach to pooling capital uh, to deal with risk. And probably to the original uh, merchantmen who were pushing their boats around the world. So it's it's been around a long time. Cyber, obviously, not quite as long as that. <laughs> um, probably probably over twenty years actually, in terms of it being a defined class of insurance, which sounds like a long time, but in the great scheme of things, it, it is a relatively new area of insurance. Although the risk has been around predominantly pretty much since we first started to use computers and pick up devices. And even before that, I know Lloyd's of London originally was a coffee shop, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lloyd's has been going for over 330 years as, a, as an insurance marketplace and uh, started out as a, as, as a bunch of um, old men talking in a coffee shop and um, <laughs> sharing information about um, vessels arriving and departing and then starting to pool a capital to share risk and uh, shoot forward 330, 340 years. And it's it's pretty much the same, to be honest. It's basic setup. <laughs> it's a group of people in a much nicer building now uh, in central London talking about risk and laying risk off onto uh, insurance uh, capital, so that businesses, organisations can can function and take risks and um, grow. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's it, you know a lot of people think insurance is dry, but in all honesty, the history behind it, why it's here, has always been you know 
pretty fascinating to anybody, especially if you run a business and you you know you're taking risks every day. I think a lot of people don't ever really see that. They 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 kind of see obviously the insurance for the car, they see the insurance for the fire and for the life, but insurance can go to really huge scales. You know, we are talking. I mean, I work for organisations who are reinsuring entire city government, you know, local government authorities for like earthquake. And then you obviously you mentioned yep. marine and there, there's a whole different yep. set of classifications for pretty much anything you would ever want to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I was at a, I was at a, 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 a meeting recently um, uh, with an insurance company in London where uh, the chairman of Lloyd's, uh, Bruce Carnegie Brown was speaking. It was quite interesting having him there. Uh, he was talking about the fact that Lloyd's of London Insurers at Lloyds of London insure pretty much the whole of the S and P 500 for one thing or another. So if you think about that for a moment, you know so that's some of the largest businesses in the world, and that one insurance market insures pretty much all of them. But even there, the history and the track record of the sector is is, is having to change to meet change circumstances. He he was talking about the fact that nowadays seventy percent of the demand for insurance from those S&P 500 businesses is for intangible risk. It's for things like cyber insurance. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's for things like intellectual property insurance and liability mm-hmm. insurance. It's not for bricks and mortar mm-hmm. and factories and buildings and cargo and, and stock. There is a lot of insurance still for that, but it's now the minority, whereas mm-hmm. the majority of demand for insurance and risk protection is driven by a need to protect intangible assets which you go back just 10 years, and the opposite was true. Mm-hmm. It was 70% hardware, bricks and mortar, property, tangible property of one type or another that people needed protecting. And so that's a really interesting kind of, I suppose, context uh, for where, what we're talking about today. The demand for insurance and risk management now is, is, is switching very dynamically away from, from those traditional areas to reflecting emerging areas of risk, which are now prevalent Uh, certainly in my world, the way that the insurance industry has had to change uh, has been quite dramatic in recent years to reflect those those new demands. And cyber is a a really good example of that. And to be honest, you're absolutely right. You know, again, when I when I first got into it, I think there was, I mean, again, it's 25 years ago. So I don't think there really was any cyber packages. There There was some of it that kind of came in later on. But it's only really in the last kind of, as you say, sort of 10 years that it's really become a really big thing. And there's been a lot of ups and downs with, with cyber insurance. When you're assigning sort of amounts to, to, to tangible assets, you can look at the value of those assets and then insure appropriately utilizing your fun and games actuaries who use calculations that I can't even fathom to assess you know, mm-hmm. what level of risk things are. But um, when you're dealing with intangible assets like IP and, and data, it's a lot more difficult to, yeah. to figure out yeah. the, the price or the cost of, mm-hmm. of that data should it go awry. You know, should it go yeah. missing? Should it be stolen? And I think, you know, what I'm seeing definitely in the market at the moment with ransomware specifically, the amounts that are assigned to data to ensure as very much seems to be in a, in a, in a kind of state of phase and confusion. Sorry if that's a bit derisive there, but it's like, mm. how does anybody assess, you know, the, the, the cost of losing a piece of data or emails? You know, remember the big Sony hack a little while ago, emails were released 
And when you looked at the amount of damage that was done to that organization, a lot of it was in the content of the emails and the conversations they were having, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The assets that they were losing, the other assets like the film assets and various other things that, that, that were. Yeah. Um, under risk at the time. That's a good point to perhaps sort of segue into that contextual piece about, you know, why cyber insurance exists in a way. Shall I just explain in broad terms what it's designed to cover? And then that perhaps might Absolutely. perhaps might put a bit of colour on this for um, for listeners. So cyber insurance, it really started out originally as, as what's called cyber liability insurance. You might remember that. It tended yeah. to be called cyber liability insurance. That was very much doing what it says on the tin to the point that, you know, it was designed to deal with one type of outcome, really, which was a breach, some kind of data breach or event, cyber event, which caused the organization that we're concerned with insuring to incur some kind of liability. And when Mm -hmm. we talk about liability in, in insurance speak, what we're really talking about is the kind of insurance that protects you if you're being sued for something. Or, or someone's threatening legal action against you. So, mm-hmm. you know, traditionally businesses have been concerned with things like employers' liability. So, if you, and that's mm-hmm. mandatory in the UK, right? So, if you have a yeah. member of staff who becomes injured arising from the work that they're doing, you know, they could bring an action against their employer for not keeping a safe place of work. And for a long time now, we've had to have that mandatory form of insurance in place. So, that protects the, poli- the, the policyholder against um, compensation and damages and claimants' costs and things like that. It's exactly the same thing for the original cyber liability policy if you suffered some kind of breach event or cyber event and there was a a liability or a threat of litigation that came against you as as a result of that let's say a data breach involving personally identifiable information on individuals then you could have insurance which met the costs of legally defending those actions of paying having to pay compensation or settlements damages and any kinds of costs and expenses that go along with that sort of a, a lawsuit. So that was that was fairly limited, and it had utility in the sense that businesses do need to be protected against that critical form of, of, of outcome if there is a cyber event. But that was pretty limited. That's as far as it went. What it does now, the, the sort of modern form of cyber insurance, does a lot more than that, in that it, it still provides that core liability protection, but beyond that, It also covers what we call first-party cyber. So the third-party cyber is the liability bit, protects you against third-party actions. And the first party, the first party being the policyholder, if you like, it's protecting the business itself, the organization itself, against the costs that it incurs in having to respond to a cyber attack. So, you know, taking your your example earlier, you mentioned ransomware, which is a plague on on the industry and has been the cause of, of, of serious heavy losses in the in the in the insurance space over the last few years in the event of a, of a ransomware attack the cyber criminal is attempting to try to take control away from the policyholder of their data and their systems and their network and all of that and then trying to extort money from them with a view to giving them back control you pay us this money and we'll give you back control and this is a very uh, severe form of, of loss. It's very expensive when it happens. Um, it's very difficult to to deal with. And it's a very difficult set of circumstances for a company to navigate when they, when they have this kind of attack. 
So this is a this isn't them being sued by somebody. This is their own loss. Their own loss in this case could be a business interruption. They can't make money anymore because that computer equipment that controlled their production equipment is no longer within their control. So um, they can't function. They just the, the company grinds to a halt effectively. And there's been various examples of this over the years, but it's an important example of a sort of first party cyber attack. And you'd need to perhaps still expend money on having IT forensics team coming in to figure out how how the bad guys got into your system in the first place, what they've seen, what, what where they've deposited and deployed their malware. Have they taken control of your core system or have they taken control of your back office backup as well? You know, all these things come into it. And it's a very expensive thing to do to go through to go through all of that. So if you can lay all that cost off onto an insurance company. Then you're in a you're in a good place, including, by the way, paying the extortion attempt, which insurers will do where they're legally allowed to, because that's that might be the quickest way of ending the attack. So, mm-hmm. so you can see where insurance has moved on from the simple liability now to protecting against the policyholder's own costs um, in responding to to an event. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting how things have progressed, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, one thing I, I I wanted to ask you definitely is is that there was kind of a landmark case a little while back uh, with Maersk, and they were they were taking their insurers to task because they had a, a security breach. They were claiming quite a significant amount of money. You know, the insurers turned around and, and said they weren't going to pay it. I, obviously, they they cited a clause or two, but that's has that been resolved yet, or is that still? Still pending. Well, I think I've one that uh, Merck, the pharmaceutical business, which is Merck, definitely that's it. Yeah, in in um, in a dispute with their insurers over that. I'm not sure that that's yet come to full fruition. Although I did read an article that said that the judge in the states in that particular case seemed to be coming down quite heavily in favour of the plaintiff, in favour of Merck rather than their insurers, who uh, I, I think one of the things the judges said was that they hadn't changed their policy wording for a long time and mm-hmm. that the, the all-risk exclusion that they were trying to rely on to avoid paying that that claim was not really fit for purpose for the sort of ex- circumstances that they were trying to suggest was something they could rely on to, to avoid paying the claim. So uh, more recently, uh, in fact, very recently, Lloyd's of London, uh, which is essentially, think of Lloyd's as almost like a trade association, a management society that manages the activities of about 100 different insurance companies within the marketplace. You know, that said to its members, we have to make it clearer to policyholders what the intent is behind these war, war risk exclusions. And this has become quite a, a sticking point for, for many in the insurance market just now because insurance has always been really tough to get or, or has always included an automatic exclusion for things related to war, regardless of mm. what type of insurance we're talking about. It's been less clear with cyber for some time now. Very often difficult to attribute a particular act a particular type of malware, for example, or a particular type of ransomware attack to a specific actor. So whether it's backed by a state, whether it's part of you know North Korea's activities, or whether it's a Russian state-backed actor, it's really difficult to, to see. So insurers are, are trying to, these um, market committees as they are, trying to bring in some suggested wording, suggested ways of doing things, which make it clearer to, to do that. Uh, to uh, to assess who's behind it and then depending upon which way the policy is worded you know you'll either have protection for that incident or you'll or you won't but those sorts of incidents are, are relatively infrequent the, the overwhelming challenge we have 
I guess you as much as me in the sense that, you know, your business is very much focused on helping businesses to prepare for cyber risk and get ahead of the curve with cyber risk yeah. and be have the right protections in place. You know, my business is there really to help people deal with the fallout when things go wrong, both sort of playing in the same sandpit in the sense that the real challenge for us is educating clients um, full stop because the UK government now puts out its cybersecurity breaches survey report every year. Mm-hmm. And in the latest one for this year, it, it highlighted that 39% of UK businesses identified at least one cyber attack in the past 12 months which to me is is extraordinary you know you think about if i'd said 39% of uk businesses had had a fire in the last 12 months or have faced a, a a litigation or something like that in the last 12 months that would be pretty hysterical but cyber insurance at cyber risk it tends to go over people's heads so people um, SMEs, particularly in the UK, don't even know often that cyber insurance exists to help them manage their way through these problems. So the challenge we have right now is one of education, is is outreach to clients, telling them about cyber risk, getting them on the front foot with it, not trying to flog insurance to, towards them, but actually taking your approach initially, which is, this is the risk, this is what it looks like in your sector, this is what it looks like in your own domain, and here's what you can do about it with some sensible straightforward intelligent uh, risk management and then you know if you still want to you can lay off any residual risk onto insurance uh, companies with cyber insurance but uh, we're on a bit of a mission now to educate people along those lines well you've got a total agreement with me there on on that one i think security has always been a, a bit of a tough space you know um from both sides of the fence really in many respects because in some respects you're preparing for an event or to sp- prevent an event from occurring, or if it does occur, a way to recover as quickly and cleanly and efficiently as you can from it. And then when all else fails, obviously, you'll end up claiming on your insurance or feasibly claiming on your insurance, depending upon what the situation is. It's quite tough sometimes to educate organizations in that space. If they've never had an incident or they haven't had an incident close to home, it's sometimes very difficult to get people to understand the level of risk that they're holding, especially if they don't do any risk management, which unfortunately seems to be quite a significant yes. amount, amount of people. I mean, yeah. I've always been a, a big advocate for, for cyber insurance myself. I think in the early days of cyber insurance, I could see some serious problems with it because, I, I mean, I, I saw the cost that companies were, were, were incurring when they had cyber events. It wasn't just loss of the data, it was the cost of the PR, it was uh, the cost of any fines, it was um, the cost of recovery, it's the, you know, the overtime cost, the marketing as well. I think a lot of people don't look at that when they factor in how costly an event is. Some of the big, big firms that, that, that have had breaches, one of which was a reinsurance firm itself, and I know them very well for various different reasons, and and they have to gain that trust back from their clients. And how, how can you put a cost on that? And again, especially yep. when you're looking to, to get insurance, to get the payout on that, the cost that they perceive that they will need to perform the kind of recovery functions that they need versus what the insurer is willing to pay out or offering to pay out can be very, very yeah. Different. <laughs> I mean, what, how, what do you what do you, what do you feel about that? What are you seeing in the market around, you know, the disparagement between what the, the company thinks they're going to get in the event of a breach versus yeah. what the insurance people are, are going to 
turn around and eventually say, yeah, okay, that's what we'll cover. Yeah, this is just super important question um, right now in insurance, particularly following the last couple of years of the pandemic, which you may recall kind of kicked off in 2020 with insurers yeah. getting an extraordinarily bad name, self-inflicted, I might say, for the most part, by refusing to pay for COVID-related business interruption claims, mm-hmm. you know, something which uh, then had to get uh, pulled into the Supreme Court before insurers, you know, kicking and screaming in some cases, um, decided that uh, they were told that they had to pay. And there's there's many billions of pounds now going through in those claims in the insurance market. So there's this been this disconnect, and that was a really good example of the disconnect between what policyholders felt that they were insured for, what they were expecting to be insured for, mm-hmm. and what ultimately they get paid out for. So cyber is no different there. It's it's very much incumbent upon me and my colleagues to ensure that our clients fully understand this scope and the natural kind of limitations of what a cyber insurance policy can do for them. And the way that we've, we tend to approach this is kind of twofold. First of all, we try to explain what cyber risk is and why it's necessary for them to consider insurance as an option. And secondly, we help them to understand, having got on board with the concept of insurance, how much insurance is probably going to be likely to be a, a good thing for them. So, you know, there's two, there's two challenges there. Um, we've, we've developed various tools and facilities for helping to do this, to articulate the risks to clients. But in essence, you know, my starting point is that pretty much every business in the UK, regardless of its size or sector, has a cyber exposure, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know this, I know this. The clients often don't know this. And they often have these myths, which they're constantly throwing back as a pushback to you. I'm too small to be attacked. Yeah, It won't happen to me. I've got Mick in IT. He's really good. Mick is in IT. No one's going to get past him. He's really good. Or I, I outsource everything over to these guys over there, and it's all in the cloud, and it's not my responsibility anymore. There's all these things which people are continuously pushing back on as reasons why they don't feel they should buy the insurance or it's necessary for them. Uh, so much so that we've composed a kind of um, myth-busting fact sheet ourselves, <laughs> which unpicks each of those. So... And so I I think we can get people onto an understanding that if you hold data and which business doesn't hold data of some sort, or if you rely upon systems of some sort, you know, even if it's e-banking or or email or something basic like that, then you have, you're exposed to cybercrime and you need to do something about it. Not because I'm telling you, you need to, but because the law tells you, you need to, right? The Data Protection Act in this country says, if you're holding data, you need to take reasonable steps to secure it. So this is why my company collaborating with businesses like yours in helping to plug gaps in our capabilities, perhaps bring services to that you can offer to our clients to help them get on the front foot with this is so is so important. But what we can then also do is to say, look, we've got now, because we've been insuring this risk for 25 years, um, we've now got a data set, right, that mm-hmm. we can use that says, for example, if you are a a law firm with this number of staff, with this revenue level, we can tell you with reasonable accuracy what a medium severity ransomware loss is going to cost you. And we can Mm -hmm. do that because insurance companies are giving us the data and saying this is what we've paid out before when this Mm -hmm. has happened to similar companies in a similar sector and a similar size. And this is what we paid for for extortion payments. This is what we paid for IT forensics. This is what we paid for dealing with the information commissioner and the regulatory side of things. This is what we paid for breach response. 
uh, and data backup recovery services and recompilation costs and all that kind of stuff. And you can break it down um, and be re- really accurate as to as to how much insurance a business ought to carry. So, you know, those are really powerful tools. We've had this for for a hundred plus years for things like motor insurance. Right? We can tell with alarming accuracy what a thirty eight year old man in this postcode district of London is likely to suffer as his motor experience, his motor claims experience. We can't do that as accurately with cyber yet, but we're getting close to it very quickly. Mm. Um, so that's that's articulating why they need the coverage and what it's going to do for them, and then what level of coverage they need to have as well, which is, you know, I think quite important part of this um, whole conversation. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I do when I calculate risk, and, and it's, it's a, a quite a significant, significant factor on really what the outcome of that, that final risk valuation that I look at uh, when I'm doing my side of the fence, um, we look quite strongly at control strengths that are in place. So we have the event, we have the descriptor, we have the, you know, like you say, Data is really important, you know, because you you can look at other similar kind of breaches and and roughly assess from a non-financial side of things, you know, how at risk you are, whether you're kind of in that same space or whatever it may well be. But one of the things we look at is control strengths. And that will quite often reflect the level of risk that we see, you know, a particular event being. It's a little bit more difficult for insurance companies, though, because quite often you don't have maybe the level of uh, understanding of the control strengths an organization has in place to protect themselves from, say, the ransomware event or something of that nature. Is that something that you guys do do that we just don't see? Or is that something that's starting to come in? Because I, I remember in the original insurance policies when it was cyber liability insurance, there was a, a, a bit in there about, you know, do you have AV? Do you have, you know, sort of governance and all the rest of it? Well, I must admit, back in the, the back in the early days, I think we had a discussion about it. I found it quite laughable because some of the countermeasures they were they were asking for were, were pretty basic in the grand scheme of things. And is it different now? I mean, do you consider that? If I was, say, for instance, you know, a uh, a large organization seeking to get, um, you know, to move my cyber insurance over to, say, yourselves or a new provider. Could I get my premiums cut down if I could prove that I had at least a minimum level or a certain level of security strength in my defenses, you know, in my defense in debt? Is that something that, that, that insurance companies consider or is that something that are you pulling in data and assuming from the size, the type, the sector, the, you know, how, what, what are the, those valuation pieces that you look at? Yeah. So this again is a good question. I mean, previously when insurance, cyber insurance first kind of started to come out, the, the only real tool that insurers had for underwriting risk, for assessing risk was really the proposal form. So you yeah. would often get fairly lengthy questionnaires that you would put in front of clients to say, please fill in this form. And it might cover off basic stuff like antivirus. It might cover off how businesses were backing up their data, whether or not they were training their staff in being alert to cyber threats, and some some basic bits and pieces like that. Shoot forward, certainly over the last um, 10 years, and we've now got to a point where um, some of the insurers, not all of them, but some of them are, are very sophisticated and have been investing very heavily in threat intelligence and risk assessment tools. Mm-hmm. So 
It's one insurer, for example, who, when I go into their quote and bind extranet system to get a quote for a client, I only have to put in one bit of information, which is the URL. It's their website address. And I click go. And when it when it's whirring away building the quotes, the quote options for me, what it, what I'm not seeing is the massive amount of clever algorithmic um, work, underwriting work going on in the background where they're sucking in information from publicly available sources about that, that domain. They're scanning, they're using their own threat assessment tools to scan um, for vulnerabilities, doing what the bad guys do, right? You know, a lot of the time, looking for email vulnerabilities and ransomware-related vulnerabilities and things like that, in uh, looking for out-of-date software and things that you can find um, if you externally uh, review publicly available information on that business. You don't need to hack them to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they're pulling all of that information literally within 30 seconds and present deciding whether or not they can offer terms and then presenting quotes that are based upon all of that information that they've pulled in so that's the really extreme end of the the sophistication scale so far as underwriting goes some insurers are still relying upon forms essentially but perhaps those forms are a bit more detailed than they used to be um, so we ourselves have sort of settled on as intermediaries here as, as advisors as risk managers as brokers here we've, we've settled on a sort of um, midway point there so we will provide clients not with an application form for insurance so much as ask them to fill in a cybersecurity health check questionnaire that we've composed ourselves, that we know is asking all the right questions, that when, when we get that back, we can take a reasonable stab at what that client's current level of cybersecurity defense is. And then we can use ecosystem partnerships like you, like others, to plug any gaps we feel that are necessary. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to come to your second point about, is there money off for doing this kind of thing? What's tended to happen, and it goes back to the, the data provision element I talked about a moment ago, you know, insurers now have a lot of data that they can hang decisions on, having insured lots of losses in the, in the recent past. So if, you, if you're saying to me, if you come to me asking for insurance, saying that you don't train your staff, cybersecurity awareness and you don't have multi-factor authentication on your key software accounts for example it's probably not going to be so much a question of oh well if you do this you're going to get money off as to i can't insure you full stop because those are such basic forms of protection now that insurers see them as as must-haves um, in order to get insurance there are certain other types of of cybersecurity, where if you can show that you've gone the extra mile, it could well help us to get better, more relaxed insurance terms. So things like penetration testing, for example, Hmm. having an incident response plan. If you've gone through this process, if you've maybe done ISO 27001 or Cyber Essentials Plus or something like that, you know, those are very, very positive steps of self-help towards making sure that you've built as a resilient business, resilient to cyber attack. And if I can get that information from you and put that in front of insurers, that's going to go a long way towards me getting better terms, um, more relaxed terms, perhaps maybe higher limits even um, than would than would otherwise be the case. So there are there are some basic stuff that you have to do. I would say staff yeah. training and multi-factor authentication is the two examples of that. And then the rest of it really depends upon what sector and size you are and what you're doing and what data you're holding and what volumes of data you're holding and maybe the reliance upon access to systems for, you know, um, production equipment and uh, production processes and things of that nature. Each business is, is obviously considered on its, on its individual merits. 
Absolutely. And I guess that was what you were going to say. You know, I suppose if you're a very, very large organization, say a pharmaceutical company with a lot of IP, you're going to dig a lot deeper as a, as a set of brokers when you're doing that investigative phase before obviously you provide the quote to make sure that they do have themselves in order because obviously the insurers don't want to pay out in the event of a breach. The company definitely, I can tell you this, definitely doesn't want to go initially even through the breach. But just doing that piece of investigation. And, and you mentioned something interesting about certs as well. I mean, ISO 27001 has, has become a, a, a must-have now for a lot of organizations. I think there's a, a lot of third parties now, and it's being driven by customers saying, no, if I'm going to you know, utilize your services to help us run our business, you know, be it look after IT or be a, a, a partnership and providing software and stuff, you must have a level of of certification that we recognize. So ISO 27001, big, 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 big thing at the moment. When it comes to things like PCI DSS, though, obviously the fines for PCI DSS can be rather extreme, you know, depending upon how bad the breach is. Does that sometimes, does certification sometimes take you in the opposite direction? So if you've got ISO 27001 and you can prove it and you've got the certificate and you've, you've been audited and all the rest of it, I'm guessing an insurance company will say, actually, you're, you're quite a safe, safe company to insure compared to somebody who doesn't. Whereas if you've got PCI DSS where, okay, yeah, you've gone through PCI DSS, but we're, we're aware you're a tier one merchant or a tier one service provider. And we know obviously that you're dealing with a certain amount of transactions a year. And actually, the fines could be pretty excessive. Does, will that actually go the other way and ramp you up? Or is it kind of even kill? Well, that, that I mean, as I said earlier, we, we would start with, um, you know, a, a position where we're, we're, we're helping the client to discover the risk. Um, mm-hmm. And part the flip side of that coin is that we're also helping to present to the insurers the, de- the relevant detail of that particular client's risk exposure. Mm-hmm. So if you are uh, a business that's processing 20 million credit card transactions every year, as opposed to a business that might have exactly the same um, revenue, but mm-hmm. deals with very virtually no credit card transactions because they make money in other ways, mm-hmm. then you know that's something that we would immediately alert. That difference is something we'd immediately alert the insurers to. It would be implied knowledge anyway because they would know yeah. their own underwriters would know what questions to ask of a business that's likely to be processing that sort of volume. But right away, what it enables us to do is having understood that risk and having understood the PCI landscape, you know, as an area that the client needs to get on board with compliance wise, we can then start to focus our attention from a risk management standpoint and make sure we're asking all the right questions. Um, so we would know that that's an issue, that that PCI DSS element is a challenge for the client. They need to be able to evidence how they are in compliance with the relevant um, uh, uh, requirements. Now, of course, this is where we would probably give you a call (laughs) but um, (laughs) that needs that sort of level of input. But we would then, uh, it would definitely pay for us to be serving up to the insurance company information that evidences compliance or at least, Mm -hmm. you know, a framework of compliance and an application Mm -hmm. to get on the right foot with it for for that that, um, insurance company to then say, okay, right, we we can see what they're doing here. We're comfortable that they've got this on their radar. It's a board level issue that they're engaged with um, in the same way that 
general data protection is. You know, we, we like to see, insurers like to see a positive attitude to risk management. They mm-hmm. don't want people to be to be on the back foot, to be caught unawares um, in exactly the same way that if you're a manufacturer, an insurance company is going to want to know that you've got a really good story to tell about your health and safety in relation to your mm-hmm. staff and you know, to avoid injuries and things like that. Exactly the same thing goes with cyber insurance. They want to know that the more sophisticated, the more reliant you are upon data and systems, that you are taking this very, very seriously right the way through to perhaps some really extreme examples would be an insurer that's that's insisting upon having some kind of security and event management system in place or an SOC system in place mm. or an endpoint detection and response system in place or an XDR system in place. They will apply all of those, all that thinking uh, criteria given the sophistication and the needs of that, of that policyholder as it's been presented to them. So we don't have to worry about all that extreme stuff for most of our clients you know most of our clients are smes that don't have that kind of level of level of sophistication in in terms of their processes but but we we need to be able smart enough to advise clients on where the common sense steps lie given what they're what they're actually doing now finally one of the things that i i want to kind of go over before we go into our kind of like final stretch where we you know go over what what our thoughts are for the future one of the things I wanted to specifically hear, I mean, the cost of insurance, cyber insurance, obviously, hence what we're here to talk about, has, has risen a little bit, actually, since since it first came out. And I think when ransomware started really kicking off and becoming quite a big thing, and we still started to see some serious companies affected by it, it wasn't just like a, a, a little SME, you started seeing, you know, quotes coming in. For, for massive amounts of money to insure. Is that still happening? Is that something you can see going forward? I mean, we've, we've got several big landmark court cases. We've already just chatted about one of them at the moment. Depending upon the outcome of that, are we going to see a, a, a rise in the cost of insuring or do you see it kind of leveling out? Well, uh, yeah, it's a great point to make and um, is very important part of this overall discussion on, you know, the value of, of cyber insurance in mitigating these kinds of risks. And since the pandemic hit, we've seen certain types of cyber activity really take off, rocket. You know, uh, ransomware's the, the, probably the best example of that. Uh, there's a report by IT security company NCC Group that I always quote, which is the increase in ransomware attacks increased by 288% between Q1 and Q2 of 2021 alone which is pretty scary when you think about it. Mm. And insurance companies tell us that this is consistently the most expensive type of, of claim that they have. The, the UK's perhaps the UK's largest provider of cyber insurance. It's, I think, about 16 or 18% of their cyber claims in terms of the, the frequency, but it's well over 80% in terms of the severity of their total cyber claims, ransomware. Wow. It, it's very thorny. So, also, Hiscox, uh, an insurer in this space, did some research um, that showed that the average cost of a cyber attack, not just ransomware, but the average cost of a cyber attack of any type, doubled between 2020 and 2021. So, you know, you've got this backdrop of the incidents increasing, the cost of dealing with them increasing, businesses not necessarily understanding the importance of cyber insurance and not always being protected. And so when people do come to ask for cyber insurance since the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, the prices have been increasing quite dramatically. And that's because insurers 
quite frankly, three, four years ago, pricing was a little bit finger in the air. It wasn't always yeah. based upon accurate data. Whereas now insurers have learned the hard way through dealing with claims where the, the stresses and trends lie and the reflection that's now being reflected in the costs that they're charging for the insurance. And, you know, if going back to what I was saying earlier about 39% of businesses having had at least one cyber attack in the past 12 months, all of the research reports that I read consistently show that you're far more likely to need to make a claim as a business person under your cyber policy than you are under your fire or flood or employer's liability or product liability or professional negligence policy. Those traditional lines have nothing like the the chance profile, the risk profile of cyber in terms of the likelihood and severity of loss. So what we're saying to people is, very sorry, it's it's bad news. I know that given the cost of living increases and inflation and all the other stuff that's going on in the world, that we're now having to ask for you to pay more for your cyber insurance, sometimes double or triple what you did before, you know, last year. But it's reflecting the fact that that cyber risk is now the number one threat to your operational financial resilience. So it has to be the main part of your insurance program. Um, and that's a tough it's a tough message for people to swallow, but it's it's one that we have to give them nonetheless. You know, the insurance now, the cost of cyber insurance now is is reassuringly expensive, if I can put it that way, <laughs> given that it's now the main threat vector for, for most of our clients, the, the main threat to their to their resilience. So it is it is bad news, but uh, it's necessary for us to give that information to people because they, they have to be prepared for it. Fantastic. Just out of interest, just in case you have the figure to hand. I mean, what are you seeing? What what's the insurance industry seeing as the or or, or quoting as the cost of cybercrime at the moment, you know, as of kind of twenty twenty two? Do you have any projections or anything to you know to put this into perspective of how big a problem cybercrime is in in the world today? I mean, I, I've seen figures from kind of security you know, security companies. It's interesting to see what the insurance companies are saying. Yeah. Uh, the, the insurance companies, there's a report by uh, Allianz with big um, multinational German headquartered insurer. And there are a couple of others of a similar ilk. And they consistently show that cyber insurance, cyber risk, I should say, cyber risk is, is kind of on a par almost with other systemic threats um, like climate change, wow. uh, you know, in terms of its in- impact on the global economy, the global uh, threat landscape. So uh, in terms of insurable losses, it's, um, it's far and away the main area of concern and has been for the last several years. And I think will probably continue to be, certainly for the next couple of years, we've seen obviously the Ukraine situation playing out and yeah. it's the impact that that's having on the, the cyber threat landscape in Europe and further afield, that that's constantly evolving and is very dynamic and people need to be on the front foot and aware of that. So... What I can tell you is that in terms of the total amount of annual insurance premium that the global insurance market derives from cyber insurance, it's about $7 billion in 2021, I think it was. But by 2025, it's going to be three times that. It's going to be close to $21 billion. So I think the the pathway, the trajectory we're on here is very clear. You know, it's there are various reports in my in my industry around insurance that, harking back to what we were talking about earlier, that that cyber insurance, the total size of that market is going to become bigger than the entire property insurance market globally 
um, by 2040. So if I were an insurance broker just selling property insurance to people, I'm in a rapidly dwindling insurance market compared to someone who's, who's focused on cyber insurance. So, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be as commonplace, I believe, as professional indemnity insurance and director's liability insurance now is for some businesses. It'll be the first thing people ask for. We're already seeing it become a contractual obligation in some sectors, science and technology sectors in particular. So I, I think in, in that sense, we're on a, we're on a bit of a, uh, a steep climb in the, um, in the likely sales and size of the cyber insurance market going forward. Those are some big numbers and, and some frightening numbers as well. And it, it correlates with, with what we're seeing in the security industry. I think the figures that, that were released kind of at the beginning of this year were the cost of cybercrime is looking at being something in the region of like $6 trillion. I think it's going to go way north from that with everything going on. You know, we didn't factor in some of the more interesting events going in certain parts of the world at the moment, you know, driving that cost up. Because as you mentioned before, now we're talking about state-sponsored and, you know, fundamentalist groups in that space as well, kind of, you know, revenge attacks, that kind of thing where, yeah, yeah, they're still getting money, they're still gaming for money, but, you know, they're also specifically targeting organisations in different countries for various different reasons, like for pulling out due to sanctions or all kinds of other reasons behind it. It's it's a frightening landscape. And, and when we're looking at an economy at the moment, uh, you know, global economy on the whole, that really isn't doing very well, I'd point out, because of, as you mentioned, we've already just had a pandemic. We've come out of that. And now we're going into various different problems around the world. You know, cost of living is increasing. I think it's 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 going to be interesting to see what happens because what I've seen is when times get hard for people, some of those who are very tech savvy and in that kind of space can move over to to crime. And cyber crime is a very 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 difficult area to prosecute in. You know, for for various different reasons, and there's, it's a quick and easy way to get much better money than you could ever do being an employee somewhere, but obviously you take that risk. When you're desperate and when you've got to feed your kids and when you've got to pay your mortgage, it is just the way of the, the way I it works. I think that's a, a really important you know, point, B, and it's a good illustration of the limitations of insurance, right? Because if you've got the insurance market globally takes in premiums of, I, th- I believe it's between one and a half and two trillion dollars a year, something that's less than two trillion dollars a year the entire insurance sector every year. So if you've got cyber costing globally businesses $6 trillion a year, so let's say from your earlier comment, you can see that there's a limitation to what the insurance sector can do. I think, yeah. I think what we can do is, is massively important, particularly for SMEs. We can, we can be there to support them uh, through cyber events um, and manage the, the financial fallout and, and reputational fallout of cyber events. But what, what we can't do is, is be the complete solution. So that's why the, the real solution here is a combination of government-related action, private sector-related action, businesses like yours helping clients get on the front foot with cyber security, whatever flavor that they need of that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what we're doing in terms of hammering that message home ourselves about the, the relevant risk management they need in place and then the insurance backstop where it where we can put it into place i think you know far and away the best or the most useful feature of an insurance policy a cyber insurance policy is the breach response service 
So unlike other types of insurance, cyber comes with the insurer's ready-to-go panel of experts, whether they're lawyers who are brilliant at dealing with regulators like the FCA or the Information Commissioner, or whether it's um, breach forensics people who can help you to discover what happened in the first place, whether it's crisis communications consultants and public relations consultants that are paid for and arranged by the insurer for the benefit of their policyholders to manage brand damage, um, whether it's extortion consultants who can help clients to understand who it was, which ransomware gang has hacked them, whether or not they'll get control of their system back if they pay the ransom, all these kinds of things come into it. If you have to go go it alone, that is a really horrible place to be. You know, if you mm. have to, as an SME, f- suddenly find all of these services yourself, it can be a very, very scary and difficult and expensive and time-consuming thing to have to do if you don't have insurance uh, on your side. So mm-hmm. that that's the, the thought I would leave with people, you know, from today's chat is is the don't go it alone message. It's a, it's a very powerful one, I feel, from an insurance perspective. Well, you have no arguments from me here. I mean, you know, I mean, my final thoughts on this one is... In information security, we quite often talk about this defense in depth methodology, which encompasses governance, it encompasses policies and procedure, it encompasses testing and assurance, it it encompasses, you know, technical security, physical security. And and the way that we term it in Razorthorn is the iceberg. You see just the, the brief tip of it. But a large bulk of your defences actually sit below the surface in a place that, that, yep. that most people wouldn't really see. Um, mm. For a while now, definitely since ransomware started getting really, really problematic, we've been adding in cyber insurance right at the bottom of that iceberg as when all else has failed, when the governance has failed, when your technical countermeasures have failed, when you know your third parties have, have not managed to do what they're meant to do, and you've got nothing left to turn to, that's when you have your insurance. So make absolutely certain that it is part of your portfolio. But as you say, be very, very careful. You know, sit down and work with a broker. Don't just, you know, I'm one of these people, I prefer to work, we total exposure here, you know, we use Matthew's company as, as, as our insurers. And, you know, going to a broker and telling people such as yourselves, you know, what we need, how we need it is far, far better than going and getting an off the peg solution because the terms and conditions can be can be tailored. We can understand what we're getting for the money that we're getting. Yeah. And if you do have an organization that's very specialized in very specialized areas with very specialized needs and requirements, going to a broker when you're looking at that part of your defense in depth and getting the right information and giving them the right information. We we talked about giving over information on how we're conducting security and so on and so forth. It is important for for us to communicate that to you because, you know, we could feasibly get a a much fairer premium price, you know, when it comes down to it. So definitely should be part of your defense in depth, in my opinion. Definitely should be something that, that every organization looks at objectively um, and if you're not, then you're just waiting potentially for, for a rather costly and then sometimes, you know, a business busting event to occur where yes. once you've paid it out, you've got nothing left at the end of it. I mean, what are your final thoughts? Yes, I, I think um, the IBM Ponemon report in every year comes out with uh, with average cost of breaches. I think um, now well over four million dollars. Um, so, you know, as an SME, I'd be asking myself, could I afford that if I didn't have insurance? 
And I would think most SMEs don't have that sort of money lying around. So you, you then have to think about what are you going to do to mitigate this risk using businesses like yours, James, using insurance from independent brokers like ourselves to properly assess risk and help you get on the right footing. There's really no substitute for the combination of risk management and insurance in these circumstances. And that will make you a very resilient business, uh, very much more attractive business as well. I'm, um, you know, be delighted to help anybody who's listening in <laughs> with any, with any um, uh, concerns they might have. Fantastic. Where can they find you? Just just again, just so uh, anybody out there looking for cyber insurance, obviously you can get in touch with us at Razorthorn. We'll put you in touch with Matthew. Um, Matthew, do you just want to kind of tell us where, where we can find you online, that kind of thing? Sure. So my company is called Partners and Group. It's partnersand.com, partnersand, all one word, .com. And uh, just click on uh, the cyber page on there and you'll find my contact information. I'm also on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And uh, hopefully all of you out there have found this interesting. Please feel free to you know send us any comments if there's anything you want us to cover. If you want another session with us talking about cyber insurance, and maybe digging a little bit deeper into it. Um, or if you've got questions for Matthew and you want to come through us or go to him direct, then you know please feel free to email us in or get in contact with us and we'd be more than happy to help in any way, shape or form. Thank you all again for listening in. We'll be back again with some even more podcasts. We're recording them on a regular basis about a variety of different topics. If there's anything that you feel that we should cover or anything you want us to cover, again, feel free to get in touch with us and we'd be more than happy to get involved. But from, from myself and from Matthew, it's a goodbye from us. See you later, guys. Goodbye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day. Bye.